Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Thomas. And I'm Shreya, and we're your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on Q Talks, we are talking to Simon Hombersley. Simon is CEO of Xampla, a natural plastic alternative made entirely of peas and is a spin out from Cambridge University. Simon is an experienced technology entrepreneur with a track record in using technology to solve environmental problems. He is the former CEO of Oxford Flow, an energy reducing wealth technology he spun out of Oxford University's Department of Engineering Science. Hi Simon, thanks for coming on the show with us today. Not at all. Um, can you start by telling us a bit about your background? So I am a clean tech entrepreneur, I guess. This uh, Zampler is my fourth clean tech project. So I've been doing this for about 15, 16 years, something mm. like that. And that's what I do. I take early stage uh, technologies with uh, an environmental uh, impact and turn them into companies. That's that's what I do. Wow, great. So um, you mentioned Zampler. And can you tell us what exactly it is? Zampler has uh, it's developed from about 10 years of work in the Department of Chemistry here in Cambridge, and it's uh, an entirely new class of biomaterial based on, on plant protein. So uh, Thomas Knowles, who was the academic founder, was researching proteins. He's a leading expert in protein, and he was trying to under understand why or how spider silk is made. And once he'd worked out what the spider was doing, he then realized that if he applied that to low-cost, widely available, sustainable plant proteins, he could create a novel material which was completely biodegradable and natural and sustainable. And that's that's what Zampler is here to do. Our goal is to replace plastics. Simple as that. We're a mission-led business and our ambition is to replace plastics. Wow. And how did you get involved in that spin-out? I uh, my previous spin-out was a project out of Oxford, which I know you're mm -hmm. not supposed to say in Cambridge, but there we go. <laughs> I crossed all the way across from Oxford to, to come here, uh, and I was uh, looking around after that project, and I came up to Cambridge, and uh, Cambridge Enterprise were very good at, at uh, introducing you to various people, and I met various people. And Thomas, we think of ourselves as a sort of manufactured boy band in some way, a deeply disappointing <laughs> boy band, but nonetheless, that's that's what we are. So we met, and we felt that there was a good fit between between what he was doing and where the company was or his project was at that stage uh, and what my background was and my experiences. So that's how we, simple as that, came together. And Mark uh, Rodriguez-Garcia is the third sort of spoke in our wheel. He's the other co-founder who was working with mm -hmm. Thomas on, on this as a postdoc and has come now over to Zampler to be head of research. So you mentioned you were, you're a clean tech entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So what exactly does that mean? Because that's not a term that we've kind of talked about here before. I think it's probably an outdated term. Now. <laughs> so uh, clean tech in the in the in the dust and ashes after the dot com boom of the early noughties, clean tech rose as as an opportunity, uh, and everybody was talking about it then. Uh, and essentially, this is around energy efficiency or environmental impact. It's how you know what technologies can be used, or indeed other 
processes and businesses can be used to, to make uh, the world a better place from an environmental point of view. But critically, it's not about doing good from a, a worthy policy sort of way. It's about making money. It's about doing business. So my first business mm. was an energy-efficient compressor company. So this is a technology I, I knew the inventor personally, and we started a business together. And that technology reduces energy consumption in compressors by about 25%. Now, that is obviously uh, uh, compressors, nobody knows about compressors, they're very widespread in all industrial plant around the world, you use compressors, they're, they're you know, 10% of all industrial electricity goes through compressors. So they're a main, major energy user. 25% uh, efficiency gain is obviously commercially very attractive it gives us a much more competitive product mm -hmm. but it also delivers social benefit so so that's what i guess clean tech is all about mm -hmm. and clean tech now is more mainstream so that's why we don't talk about it in quite the same way because actually every business wants their energy efficiency to be improved it's no longer a, a, a an innovative thing to be doing it's simply core to mm -hmm. to businesses and i think where we're at now in this sort of sort of trend is around impact mm -hmm. is probably the word that we use rather than specifically clean tech or social impact or, or whatever so impact businesses such as ours are mission driven we're purely for profit we're completely uh, you know ruthlessly aggressive as commercial entities but in chasing that profit motive we can create positive uh, impact on the planet in this in this case so that's kind of what I do. Mm. I was going to ask you about that point about impact mm. because being energy efficient or being clean for the environment is a very kind of topical mm. conversation right now and how so how important do you think it is that a startup that you are helping to drive is able to make a global impact or is it more about how interesting the technology is from a profitability point of view? I think it needs to come together. So any form of disruptive business, which is what Zampler is, uh, needs to see a long-term shift mm. which, which it can enact in effect. So uh, if you are sitting in uh, a major chemical company or fossil fuel company right now, and this is going on right now, their strategy managers and their directors and, and all of the sort of future scoping people will know that they are dead men walking, essentially. In 20 years time, those businesses will not exist in the form that they are. And if you think, uh, you know, even just back in recent history, Kodak, Kodak was a major consumer brand 30 years ago, and it's nobody uses Kodak products now. You know, you can go back generations before that. You can go back all the way to guano harvesters in the, in the 18th century, who, with the introduction of the synthetic chemistry industry, were put out of business. These disruptive trends happen. Mm. And uh, in these sort of fossil fuel majors, they are going to be concerned about where the, you know, where the world is going over the, the next 20 years. Now, that's an opportunity it's commercially so the technology is there the technology is differentiated and it is a step change and it's different but what's i think uh, very rare in a in a startup it, particularly in this sort of um, hardware sort of side in terms of you know this is a material science company really this is not a software play this is a, a real company in my terms um is that you've got a couple of things coming together we have got a defensible and novel uh, uh piece of science and technology but we also have an extraordinary consumer drive to replace plastics in the environment, and that is reflected by regulatory drivers. Mm. So China last week banned plastic bags within 18 months from now. That's extraordinary. Mm. 
you know, and, and this is not just, you know, in the Western uh, countries, we've been, you know, single-use plastics have been banned. There's been all sorts of moves in the EU. The microplastics ban is a major driver for our business. But it's not just in, in uh, the West. India is banning uh, microbeads. Mm. You know, all of these emerging nations or these BRIC nations are also taking these measures. So this is a major, major trend. So I think the two come together. I think that, mm. you know, it's great to have a, a, a groundbreaking bit of science, but that's going to go nowhere unless you've got a commercial environment that enables it to thrive. And there's no point having a political or social challenge if you don't have a, <clears throat> an actual technical solution that can solve it. Mm. Mm. You, you're a very experienced entrepreneur. But it's still very young, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit about some of the experiences you have gained over the years in, in a little moment. But maybe to come back to the decision to join the startup, what mm -hmm. attracted you to that startup? I think, I think the scale of the opportunity mm -hmm. is what attracts me. Uh, you know, these are enormous markets. They're not just small markets. They are enormous markets, you know, somewhere around half a trillion pound market in total for these kind of technologies in terms of overall resource and so forth. So these are absolutely enormous markets, which is a big opportunity. Mm -hmm. And as I say, the quality of the science generally from Cambridge, you can you can take that as a, a pretty good badge. But uh, Thomas Knowles is the leading protein researcher. Mm -hmm. He really has uh, developed something which is completely differentiated and technologically advanced. So you've got a perfect combination of technological defense and huge market opportunity. So that's why I joined. Plus, Cambridge is a gorgeous place. It's a very pretty town. So, mm. yeah. So I think it would be interesting to talk about how your approach has changed from the first venture that you saw through to your current venture um, and how you think that your learnings have developed across each of those. I think all entrepreneurs learn on the job. And I'm aware, obviously, the judge does excellent work here, teaching entrepreneurship and, and so forth. But actually, you, you learn with that on the job. Yes. Uh, and everybody who comes uh, into a startup, the first startup that they do, you know, if they're young or even if they're a little bit older, they are essentially getting their, their real world MBA paid for by those early investors because we all make mistakes a lot of mistakes at that early stage and many of them can be avoided uh, so i think that's a sort of a sort of learning there is is it is helpful at the early stage to get advice or to work with people who have done it before or who are bringing mm -hmm. other things um, and my i've definitely changed in a sort of personality type because this sort of world is very you know, it's a very personal thing starting a company and being an entrepreneur. Your own skills and your understanding of your own skills are, are pretty important. Uh, 20 years ago, when I really started working with startups, I obviously felt I could change the world and, and could set my hat at absolutely anything. I'm a lot more humble now. Mm. I realize it doesn't work quite like that. And mm. actually, you need to, to know yourself a little bit and you need to pace yourself a little bit and you need to be prepared to take advice and listen to others. And I think that's a learning that everyone can uh, can come up with. But naturally, when you're young and full of uh, energy and uh, dynamism and so forth, you do. You just jump in with your both feet. I do jump in with both feet, but I check the water depth now. I, I do think before I jump in a way that I didn't used to. Does it differ for you, for instance, if you join a company as a founder or part of the founding team uh, and maybe as a CEO coming in externally to an existing team? Is there a difference to that for you? I've not come into an existing team. I've only ever mm -hmm. been with that founder stage mm -hmm. and that does suit me personally. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference is that uh, 
strong sense of personal motivation. Mm -hmm. And I think this is not just, you know, I'm fortunate in the career that I've had, but I think people generally now, if they're given a choice around the type of company they want to join, they want their own personal motivations and ethics and values to be reflected in that business. And they want a sense of ownership of that business, even if they're joining a very large business. Mm -hmm. You know, we no longer go to work and hang up our personality with the coat on the way mm. in and then grind away and go home and have fun. We, work is a part of our lives now in a slightly different way. So we don't you know, sell out in, in that sort of way. And joining a, a, a technology startup as a founder gives you, I mean, it does give you an actual stake in the business, but it gives you a very personal and emotional stake in the business, which is highly motivating. It's It enables you to go through the long nights when you're sort of grinding away slightly or the frustrating business meetings where you're bored or whatever. It gives you that sort of sense of identity and purpose, which I think is very important. Mm. You also mentioned that over the years you've, wised up to check the depth of the mm. water before yeah. you jump in. What are some of the checks or mental heuristics you go through <laughs> in determining whether the water is safe for jumping? <laughs> I think uh, I'm not a technologist, so I'm always dependent on a technical partner to Uh, I have to trust my technical partner, essentially, because I'm not qualified to, to critique the science on, on these things. That's the reality. Mm -hmm. But I can bottom out the market, and I can go and make sure before I get involved in something there is genuine uh, market pull there. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely critical. And this is a failing of startups, and in particular university startups, mm -hmm. is people tend to start with a fantastic bit of science that they know is groundbreaking and amazing and, and assume that somebody's going to pay them money for it. And it doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. Actually, you need to go out and you need to find the problem that's going to be solved. And even with something as big as replacing plastics, I mean, great, of course, everybody's interested in, in that space. But specifically, where are the market entry points? What is realistic? If, if a project is going to take 10 years of regulatory barrier to get through mm -hmm. and there are no venture capitalists in that sector prepared to work for that long or to take that risk, then you're, you don't have a project. Mm -hmm. And there's no point pretending you do. No amount of optimism is going to get you there. So that's the kind of, of bottoming out that I think is, is sensible mm -hmm. to do right at the start of, of any project. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, you need to think around the sort of Uh, context of it, and you need to think about who the people are in, involved. Uh, starting companies is is all consuming, all absorbing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are just about to go off and start a family, or if you're, mm -hmm. you know, there are all sorts of personal things that people really need to think about when they start a business or join a founding team. Where where are the other founders at the moment? What stage are that in? Are they in life? Are they able to take the years that it's going to take to get through to the other side? It's it's a very personal thing starting companies. Mm -hmm. Are there any pitfalls that you've seen researchers fall into, particularly looking to do spin-outs? Uh, I think it's it's kind of related to, mm. to the sort of technology push thing. I think that is absolutely the biggest yeah. issue, is people pushing technology out mm -hmm. rather than uh, allowing industry to pull or customers to pull the solution towards them. And this is why you see a sort of growth of things like hackathons and, and so forth. This is a way of trying to ensure that there is a clear problem definition at, at the beginning. And sometimes it's just a matter of matching it. The science 
in, in Zampler's case, there was an element of this as well. The science was there. There was a little bit of work to be done to understand exactly what that science was was useful for. And this, in part, happened before I joined, and then I, I worked on that process as well. Um, so there is a that is a sort of uh, a, a risk area in all of these sorts of things. It's great, great science. Obviously, it's going to be valuable. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Mm. Uh, and that affects things like patenting as well is is people tend to patent too soon and they tend to patent what they think is interesting as researchers rather than what industry or or what is strategically commercially useful to them and that's natural in university environments in particular because universities have a duty to publish and to share information that is the purpose of a university and and you know cambridge does not exist as the you know r&d department of uk plc it is it has a purpose and a function that you know commercial people like me respect you know that is its its purpose but nonetheless that can sometimes be in conflict with uh, commercial activities and, mm. and that's something that early stage uh, scientists or scientists bringing ideas out of the lab need to think about where where on that path there are plenty of ways to protect ip without patenting essentially mm. yeah i was going to follow up on that point about patents of um i suppose it's an individual thing as to where your technology is at and um what else is happening in the space but, and it's quite a general question, but how do you um, kind of think about the right time to patent? What are the certain things that you should watch out for um, or know before you file for patent as opposed to other forms of IP? Mm. I think that uh, I will answer this sort of in the extreme mm. is that in an ideal world, you would never patent because patents are actually a liability. They're a cost. They're not, you know, the, the metrics that people often use to measure the success of an early stage company are how many patents have they filed. That mm. is completely the wrong metric. The metric you ought to be measuring is how much money you're making out of those patents. Up until that point, they're just costing you money. They've also set a time limit on the defensible period that you had. And they've also told all your competitors what you're doing. So patents are absolutely essential to the defense of technologies and they're a very important regime and you know patent attorneys do extraordinary work but what often gets missed at that first conversation is why are we doing this mm. do we have to do it in an ideal world you have a bit of know-how that nobody else can replicate and you never tell anybody about it and you can then just have an ex open extended period so that's arguing to the extreme arguing it to the other end of the extreme is that a university researcher will publish a paper realize it is novel and you know do a bit of prior art searching and then patent immediately without thinking at all about what's going to happen next mm. and uh, i'm sure you know the statistics on the number of patents that lapse i mean it's a very high quanti quantity of patents that lapse that's from companies as well as universities so you know this isn't you know solely a, a sort of a sort of research from university point but it is a problem so so i think that's there, there isn't a clear answer to when the right time is to patent, but I would urge people to think carefully about why they're patenting. A patent is not an achievement. It is merely a, a ladder to something else, and you need to think what you're trying to achieve with that patent. One recommendation you already made to potential uh, founders of spin-outs mm. is that they should look for good advice mm. in, in starting a company. How do you identify someone who's a good advisor and maybe discriminate against someone who is a, a bad advisor. So what are you looking for in a, in a good advisor? 
I think I would uh, it's advisor suggest sort of uh, paid or, or or other sorts of things. I mean, I think what I would urge people to do mm-hmm. is go out and talk to customers mm-hmm. and and think like a customer. And again, that's something that we are all, you know, I'm a technology enthusiast. I'm an optimist. If somebody pitches me a good idea, of course I get excited about it. That's that's the thing. But but it's best not to think like that. It's best to to put yourself if you're if you are in a particularly high-end piece of science in particular, you, you need to try extra hard to put yourself into the shoes of the people who might be buying that in five, ten years' time mm-hmm. and understand what they want to buy. And obviously the best way to do that is to go and talk to those people mm-hmm. and not be shy about it. And one of the great advantages of a place like Cambridge is it has an extraordinary extended network. It's got an amazing global brand. You, you do have access here that... that other universities or other people do not have. So use it. Mm-hmm. Go and talk to people and try and understand because the commercial drivers, I think people often don't, uh, they don't understand the pressures on the internal R&D teams or the procurement people or the end user customers. They, they, they often feel that because science is distinctive and differentiated and possibly doing good and solving a world problem, that there's somehow an automatic route to that being commercially viable. It's not automatic. Mm. There are an awful lot of pressures on people in those companies and end users uh, that you need to understand and work back from mm. uh, before you know progressing down that route. There are mentors and, you know, as I say, Cambridge is great because, you know, there are people here who are very committed to putting back when they've been successful themselves. So so that's all useful as well. And, mm. you know, you can normally get somebody from the, the Cambridge networks. But that's the main thing. Just think like a customer, not like a scientist, which is hard because obviously many people would have spent their whole lives being scientists. But you've got to think from the other perspective. Mm-hmm. Speaking of networks, do you think that it's possible to get early stage funding via your networks or do you think that startups uh, should go through um, sort of more official rounds? I think that... uh I think that it's. I think that early stage companies, the management teams, need to think carefully about who the right investors are for them. And given a choice, you should actually pick those that are strategically useful to you and bringing value to you. Mm. Now, friends and family type funding is often the way things start, and that's absolutely fine. But but the reality is they're not validating your technology in any way. You mm. know, if if a loved one gives you some money, it's because they love you, not because they know anything about the science. So it's not really particularly useful from from that point of view mm. the, the most valuable money is customer money you know what is better validation of your technology than that somebody's prepared to pay for it and a second tier from that because obviously generally science is too far from the customer to get direct money is from a reputable vc who's got a track record who's got good quality people making those decisions and when a you know a good vc firm backs you you are validated and that helps to to move you forward now, there are individual angels, particularly in the Cambridge and, and Oxford, to be fair, sort of networks where there are people who've got real industry experience and strategic experience who, again, are validating you by joining with you. So so there are individual angels. But in an ideal world, people wouldn't crowdfund science and technology products. It's different for consumer products, but, but you wouldn't crowdfund. You wouldn't do extended networks. You would you go out and go through the discipline that's required of pitching your business to a major VC because actually it makes your business better 
by you know makes you think properly and generally you know certainly the high end vcs they've got good people in them then they're, they're not going to ask silly questions they're going to ask the questions you ought to know the answer to and if you don't know you should go away and get the answers to them so i think the investment process is a good discipline for forming the company itself and for mm. progressing the company itself so where does zampla sit when you're saying a consumer based versus a sort of science and technology because um from what we've heard so far it sounds like both mm. um so how do you how do you navigate that then i think zampla's again in an interesting place because for a science company it is working in a very buzzy consumer field mm. so for us uh, the consumers are drivers of industry we are a b2b play you know and and furthermore although we may be wanting to get to customers like procter and gamble or or unilever you know major companies our customers are actually their tier 1 suppliers mm. not the end users themselves so we've got several steps back from the consumer so we're not you know we're not planning to start a consumer brand here that's not not relevant mm. but consumers drive businesses and they drive politicians So all of the regulatory drivers we've got and all of the fact that you know the Unilevers of the world are announcing major programs to reduce plastics in their supply chain and and in their consumer products are because consumers have said we've had enough of this sort of mm. thing. So that's how consumers are relevant to us. So we as a small Cambridge startup are not going to be campaigning with Greenpeace to to change the world. There are other actors far better placed to do that than than us, but we have to consider what those consumers are doing. That's where I guess consumers fit into our world. Mm. You mentioned that an excellent source of both funding mm. a startup but also for validating its credibility is customer mm -hmm. funding. Yeah. What would you advise is the best process to establish that customer relationship to attract funding to a startup? It's very 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 hard. Mm -hmm. And this is the biggest challenge for a startup uh, is uh, you know even if you know have identified correctly what your Uh, target customer wants from you and you've validated that and so forth you know these companies are huge uh, accessing the right people and the right decision makers is challenging playing the politics within those organizations to progress through is challenging it's is immensely difficult mm -hmm. and this is why uh, well certainly this is why many people go straight to a licensing model you know you get the technology to the the end of the sort of science part and then hand it over that's not a model we're progressing because i think we we can capture more or the value chain than, than that model but it's mm. understandable why many science uh, led companies do take that route so there isn't an easy answer it's just to get out there hire people who've worked in the industry who not necessarily have contacts but understand the language mm -hmm. of industry i'm always very very conscious when you go into pitch to you know some proper big industrial partner that you know we're all in there as as sort of cambridge uh, academics and we look like cambridge academics you know you've got to look like your customer that you've got to use the language that your customer uses in order for them to take you seriously and to engage with you and that's challenging that mm -hmm. is very challenging for a startup because often that culture is rather different from the team that you're expecting to build mm -hmm. uh, so that's i guess a roundabout way of saying hire people who know their industry and pick a very small place in the industry to pick your entry point or pick two or three of them and then focus 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 mm -hmm. because that's the other big problem with with particularly disruptive technologies such as Zampler's a sort of platform technology essentially is is you boil the ocean mm. you really do go out and think right i can do everything from toothpicks to wet wipes to to microencapsulation to rheology modifiers and and the works and no you're not going to do everything 
you're not. So pick the one or two or three entry points into these markets where there's real problems and drill down. Who are the decision makers in your target customers who actually have a, who own that pain within the organization or are motivated actually to go through all the aggro and the effort mm-hmm. that's involved in selling a new technology inside a, a large company and not just selling it conceptually, but then taking through their process, their engineers, their procurement, their certification regulation, people to talk to the brand managers to get through. I mean, there's a lot of opinion formers and decision makers in that sort of whole chain. So there's a lot of effort involved getting there. Mm-hmm. It is a very good thing starting a company, by the way. I'm, I'm sounding like it's <laughs> making it a little bit too hard here. It's a real buzz, and particularly if you're doing something you actually care about. But but I think that people do jump in without testing the water and, mm. and sometimes don't really appreciate what they're committing themselves to. Yes. And that's why two or three years down the line, when you've been badly paid and you've worked every weekend and you're still not getting the customer to say yes to something, people lose heart. And, mm. and it's best just to face up to that from the start and say, no, it's going to take some time. And in Cambridge, uh, you've got a huge opportunity here. And you know, with the right products and the right validation, you can do it. But it is graft, mm. hard graft to get there. I think that's excellent advice. Definitely. And sort of flipping it round on its head a bit, mm-hmm. the perspective that you're coming from is uh, product-based or sort of lab-based companies or mm. startups. Yeah. And so do you think that uh, that graft is particularly difficult with those types of companies because you have so many doors that you need to open in order to make things happen as opposed to we've met quite a lot of software-based mm. companies um, and in terms of the scalability and the amount that they are able to get it out there themselves as opposed to have to go through larger organizations. Um, Do you think that might be kind of a difference that exists um, and kind of would shape which way people go? It's, it's, It's an interesting one around scaling because we do have the myth of the tech founder of the young, you know, chinos wearing, sneaker wearing tech founder who makes his or her billion at the age of 23 Mm. and changes the world. And that's obviously very rare. Mm. You know, most technology businesses fail. That is the reality. Uh, but they do exist, and it, and it is possible. What's different between software and, you know, broadly hardware, lab-based or, or whatever, is that software uh, has got two things. One is you can scale and replicate very, very quickly, uh, which is great. Consumers make quick decisions, they move on. They, you lose consumers quickly as well, but you can mm. scale very quickly. But the other side is around access to resources. So it is weird how many investors will talk to me and say, yes, I agree, Simon, you could build a billion dollar company here. That's fantastic. The market's there. The science is there. It's absolutely fantastic. And then we start saying, right, okay, well, I need some serious money to, we need resource to scale a business. And they go, oh, well, we can't do that. Oh, that's far, you know, know, here's a few hundred thousand. Mm. You know, Uber is losing five billion a quarter now. To scale these businesses is not cheap. You have to take a disruptive and ambitious and aggressive approach to it. Now, with software companies, the model is there. The costs actually, you know, you can you can invest intelligently because you can get some metrics back on you can you you know there are ways to invest in in that sort of incremental way. So it becomes rational to say yes, I can you know put a hundred million into your company with expecting it'll turn into a billion. Hardware is more difficult because there aren't that many investors around who are patient enough and understand the science enough Mm -hmm. to be able to take those big strategic decisions. So it is harder to scale these businesses, not because there's something inherently less scalable about hardware businesses, but because there is a lack of resources or less resource 
available to, to reach those big heights, which is again why many or most hardware businesses will assume a, a sale point at some point mm. to a major who is capable of scaling to that next stage. Whereas if you're starting Uber, you know that there's going to be money for your runway all the way through because you know, you'll do an IPO and, and then on you go sort of thing. So it's a very different mindset you have to adopt from the outset. Mm. Um, what, what do you think is the biggest achievable change in human behavior that could potentially save the earth? I think the key word there is achievable, mm. isn't it? I think we all know what the technical solutions are and we all know what some of the behavioral changes are for instance meat we all know that that reducing meat consumption would would have an impact i guess the issue is what actually can be achieved and it, it sort of intrigues me this i always used to think that in order to bring the world together what we really needed is an external threat we needed an alien invasion and if, <laughs> if, if an alien invasion were coming the united nations could get us all together and we'd all work together in harmony to solve the the world's problems And I don't think that anymore mm -hmm. because we actually have a real threat. Mm -hmm. And yet we're sitting here as climate change and, and environmental degradation essentially affects our health. It's absolutely directly affecting our health. And we're not coming together. We're quibbling about people's share prices and who gets the blame and so forth. I genuinely think if there were UFO saucers flying overhead right now, and we're about to be zapped by grey goo, we'd all be fighting. And Greta Thunberg would be standing there with a, an expression of darkness on her face saying, come on, guys, mm. get it together. So I think that the, the system and the structure we have is, is not suited to solving these problems together. But what I think is positive and incredibly positive is that consumers, we as individuals, can drive change. Yes. And we can drive governments to change. We can drive businesses to change. Uh, and that's something that we can do. And it's not just in this country. We can do it around the world. So so that's the positive here. Mm. If you think about something like veganism mm -hmm. 20 years ago, people, mm. you know, they were that was mm. a vegan was a punchline to a joke. Mm. And now you've got veganism as an aspirational brand, essentially. Mm. And that's an extraordinary change. So that's what's achievable, is consumers can change our behavior. And through that, we can change companies and we can change governments. Thank you, Simon. That was a really interesting conversation. Yes, thanks for coming on the show with us. Not at all. Thank you very much. That was really enjoyable. Uh, I particularly liked his uh, recommendation that customers can be a very valuable source of validation, but also a very valuable source of, of funding. And I think that's something a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs can take away. Definitely. And from the perspective of the environment, I think it was interesting that Simon was saying that a lot of BRIC nations in developing countries are um, introducing plastic bag bans as we speak. And I think it represents a real opportunity for startups in the clean tech space to make a real impact uh, as there's definitely going to be a market going into the future. So um, I found that particularly interesting. Thanks very much to Simon for joining us on QTalks. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we would also like to say a big thanks to the team at QTech who have all been working very hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening and please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. <laughs> <laughs>